Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 7. The rest of the leg to Karaya system only took another day and a half. My stay amongst the honeyroom decor remained in effect through the trip, as well as for the two-day run in from the jump point. During that time, whatever explanations and reports that had to be filled out and filed were, or so I assume. I wasn't interviewed again during that time, though Chief Mino called me early first shift one time waking me up. He first warned me that I was being recorded and should consider this a continuation of the questioning, and then asked if I'd ever met any of the Fausel guards before. He knew I hadn't, but it needed to be on record. After that, he left me alone. S.G. Ciala checked in here and there. She wasn't effusively friendly, of course, but the frost of that long walk back to the cabin was gone. She seemed sincere, at least, when she encouraged me to relax. Yukus continued sending oblique insults through the meals I was supplied, though it seemed like they'd clamped down on the notes. Once, it was a type of triple patty mock beef burger in a style known as a fat guy. Another time, it was soup for lunch, served only with a fork. Conversely, that very night it was spaghetti with just a spoon. As the suite had a kitchen, there was cutlery aplenty. I don't know if her specific aim was to amuse or insult, but she managed to make me smile more than once, and I was grateful. I'd never been to Karaya before, and therefore never to Kezuga Station. A lookup of the place in the ship's library showed the space colony to be of the Raymar class. Those I did know. They were big fully capable of supporting a couple million full-time residents, with it remaining a buyer's market for homes and apartments. Generally busy places, Raymars had very large, if somewhat outdated, docking facilities that precluded asynchronous attachments for bigger ships and boats. Bulky vessels had to make do with cargo and passenger shuttles from nearby parking orbits. It accounted for a great deal of traffic close in, lending the places a hive-like busyness. Though very high on amenities, Dorcas of the Heather was a small liner, as such things went, and could dock without problem. Considering the circumstances, it seemed like orbital control and the dockmaster gave us the very first berth that became available, because we didn't wait long. The link-up was announced, ship-wide, and that was that. No bumps, no clangs. After a bit, I got a call from CSO Mino, informing me to be presentable in about an hour. Fifty-two minutes later, there was a buzz at the door, and S.G. Ciala stood there, looking professional as ever. We have station police detectives at Hatch 4, she stated, without preamble. 
What do they want? To ask you some questions, presumably. Come on. Notably, there was no Fausel representative standing at the door this time. I mentioned it, and my escort simply shook her head, not knowing or not caring to explain. I followed, but was querulous along the way. Didn't the police here get copies of the reports you guys made? Yep. Would that be enough for you in their shoes? I've never been in anyone's shoes but mine, and my feet still hurt. You know, that won't help me, Jock, that weird half-answer thing you do. Just tell them what they want to know as simply and completely as possible. You do want this to be behind you, right? I had to think about that. It was all just so awful, but did I? Whatever the linesman's motivation, he'd had it before we crossed paths. Mr. Fausel might have lived a long time if this hadn't happened. Many years, maybe, and with grandchildren to mourn him when he finally died from some other, hopefully less violent cause. Great-grandchildren, perhaps. Great-great-grandchildren. He'd had the money to make it happen. But I had been there when Duca pulled the trigger. All life dies, so that made me part of that old man's life. Both of their lives. I was witness to the final moments of both men and had an obligation to the truth of it, to say nothing of wicked curiosity. No, Tinig, I don't want this to be over. Not just yet. She was walking behind me, as usual, and stopped in her tracks. Sensing this, I turned to look at her. She looked back. It went on for a long time, or seemed to. I don't know what the guard saw, but I think it scared her, because with a sharp flick of the hand, she motioned for me to proceed. We went the rest of the way in silence. Debarkations were underway, and the long hallways were filled with chattering tourists dressed like foreigners. That's what they were, at least regarding this station, along with scurrying personal servants. These people were far too preoccupied to indulge in idle wonder over shipboard drama now, and none of them noticed us. Hatch 4 was rather out of the way. I'd never used it myself, as it was earmarked for officers only. It was to the fore, and down a zigzag series of companionways to starboard, hiding behind other hatches labeled with the glowing amber chevrons indicating restricted access. This day, that included me, because they all slid open on our approach. The captain himself stood there, looking dour, along with a diminutive figure in long, dark blue robes, or dress or something, with a matching hijab and red veil combination hiding her face. Hovering just outside the outer hatch, two burly characters in matching storm-cloud gray business suits stood waiting. I didn't know who they were, but could deduce it easily enough. Kezika Station Security, or KSS, Kiss guys, as I thought of them thereafter. One was a dark-complected troll, ugly as original sin, 
but with carefully sculpted, shining black hair that somewhat made up for it. The other was bloodlessly pale. He sported a blonde crew cut and choked the air with a creepy sort of menace without doing a single sinister thing that I noticed. They were strikingly different in aspect, but dressed alike as they were, projected the impression of being two of a kind, like different base materials stamped from the same mold and worked over by master craftsmen who turned them into weapons of the state. It didn't help that I had issues with authority. Ejok, these detectives need you and, uh... He looked to the pop-up hollow on his wrist comp, reading quickly. Uh, Nawala Dusentabel from the Fausal Party. Ms. Dusentabel, you are registered as being a, uh, a Hadia, is that correct? The small figure nodded mutely. To me, he said, something like a combined governess and personal assistant. It's a licensed, certified position. Okay, Ejok, Ms. Dusentabel, you are to go with these gentlemen. There are questions that need to be asked and answered on their own turf. Our people cannot accompany you there, but they've agreed to provide a ride back afterwards. I assure you, the kiss guy with nice hair injected, offering something less than assurance in his aspect and tone of voice, it will be our pleasure. He had an accent, but his English was excellent, which surprised me. It shouldn't have. This close to the border between the Empire and Ainspace... It wasn't at all uncommon for people to be fluent in multiple languages. As a law enforcement official, he likely knew Seishan as well. Being technically a nobleman, I could have insisted they address me solely in that language, and by law they would have had to comply. Being as entirely ignorant of Seishan as I was, this would have surely led to some high comedy. It seemed doubtful that anyone else would laugh, so... I just gave them a neutral smile. That is appreciated, Captain Barton replied without looking at him. Instead, he took both the Hadia and myself to one side by only half a step and lowered his voice. We leaned into a dignified huddle. Dorcas is scheduled for departure in three days. I've been told this questioning will only take an hour or two. Should there be any hang-ups, however, we won't leave without you either of you. This is all quite foul, though, and we're a long way from home, so I'm tasking you, Ejok, with this young woman's safety. Get her back aboard in one piece. Is she... I'm sorry, are you the woman who was in the room when it happened? I had started to ask the question before switching gears because I frankly couldn't tell who it was under those clothes. She nodded, the servant women had worn transparent veils in the suite, but this one was opaque. I usually found cultural and religious requirements mysterious. Some were clearly holdovers from Terra. Some were hybrid or modified versions of the same. And some were wholly original to space. In the case of the Fausals and their household, all I knew for sure is that they were La'aka Muslims, and this only because of Chef Tonva. She nodded slightly, eyes down. Yes, this is she, the captain endorsed grimly. His professional manner was on display, even now, but it was obvious he was worried. 
Hadia Duzentabel is the sole witness the Fausels are willing to provide to local authorities. We're only getting her because Chief Mino and I had a long talk with their head of security. Dorcas of the Heather bears an alliance flag. By treaty, the Imperial authorities are prohibited from stepping aboard unless the vessel poses a threat to the station, or unless I allow it, which I'm not. The Fausels are paying passengers. They have every right to be here. Our investigations indicate that they are victims, and this, what was he again, a linesman? This linesman had no known motive. Understandably, Mrs. Fausel feels like someone is out to get her. These people are imperials, yes, but citizens of another domain. Her fear may be justified. This is starting to smell political, I observed with a warning tone. Tinnig had been listening in, and her eyes flicked back and forth between us, then over at the men at the airlock door. Her youthful features were expressionless, but hardly indifferent. All the more reason to step lightly, the older man continued. It looks like we have possible refugees to care for. Not something you'd expect on a cruise like this, but we just don't know what's going on. Not yet. The victim's body, Mr. Fausel, I mean, is in a freeze tube down in cargo. Mrs. Fausel wants his remains to accompany them, naturally. We are giving Kezika the suspect's body, though. A coroner should be here soon. The police are getting a short opportunity to interview two of the four survivors of the shooting, and they're getting a corpse. That's it. I was up all third shift yesterday with our legal AI, figuring out an approach to this. I then spent two hours on comm calls with station administrators. They aren't happy about anything. Despite reassurances, they may express their displeasure in questionable ways, so stay sharp. What happens after? Am I still being sequestered? One thing at a time, Ejak. Please, we'll talk about it when you get back. I shrugged. This was going to follow the script, whatever that looked like, so there was no overt reason to doubt him. The detectives at the hatch were quiet and composed, wearing expressions that displayed themselves to be all business, and their business was now us. There was no implicit reason to anticipate a solution to this, either good or bad. There was no reason to presume anything, in fact, including civility. I excused myself for a moment and stepped to a corner, muttering on the record function of my ocular implants, which would catch not only everything I saw, but also everything I heard. I had this all set to transfer back here to my crew account on Dorcas, but I couldn't find an auto-logon for the station's public network. That was unusual. Data nets were as much a part of a settlement's infrastructure as clean air, and just as easy to use. The overlay in my eye view kept showing a prompt to make an account, asking for my ident details. I'd never encountered such a thing before on public data streams, which meant this place didn't actually have any. Our group left the ship in silence. Hatch 4 was on a different level of the hub entirely from that of the passengers, so we avoided the initial rush of wealthy tourists dashing out to lap up the local exotica. We were waved directly through customs and proceeded down a long companionway to the open hub, which was under a full G of artificial gravity. 
Mr. Hare motioned us over toward the transportation lanes and then through a restricted access door that the ghost at his side opened with a wave of a police key stick over a sensor pad in the wall. Hadia Duzentabel walked in silence, following directly behind me as if she thought I really could protect her if this went badly. Beyond was a separate lane just for official or emergency vehicles, which was surprisingly busy. An automated ambulance was off to one side, with a human and a load bot stuffing someone inside who had apparently taken poorly on the docks. No blood visible, thankfully. To the other side were several police vehicles, some just then leaving and a few arriving. Tall officers in dark, imposing uniforms stood on the sidewalk nearby. One of the new arrivals got out of his roller, which had the low-speak word Pazi stenciled on the side, and police in smaller English letters beneath. He snatched a dark blue greatcoat from the rear seat and shrugged it on, transforming into a veritable wall of authority. His size and build were a match for our own escorts. Further down the way, a cargo mover marked with the symbol for Territorial Customs was being loaded up with what I took to be seized luggage. Two maintenance trucks were further along the way, yellow caution lights flashing. Hadia Duzentabel and I were led to a black car, unmarked as a police vehicle, but of the same apparent make and model as the dark blue and white ones. When we approached, its doors opened automatically. I helped the young woman in, who looked back up at me enigmatically. With only her eyes visible, dark brown and outlined in black pencil, it was hard to read her expression. I thought I saw fear there and imagined gratitude, but really, I have no idea. She had yet to say a single word in my presence. This way, sir, please watch your head, the blonde one spoke, gesturing from the other side of the car. His voice was high and youthful, though his accent and age seemed the same as his partner. They ordered the car to return to headquarters, and it took off in a leap, merging easily and then running for nearly a full minute at high speed before slipping onto a general causeway elevated slightly above human traffic in the hub. If I had to guess, we went as much as two kilometers before stopping at a vehicle elevator. These were along the diameter of the hub, corresponding to the station's support legs or struts that ran down to the ring of the station proper. We took one of the big lifts, all on our own. There'd been rollers and cargo bots waiting before us, but either it was the custom or the law to let peace officers have the elevator all to themselves, maybe especially when they were escorting someone who was clearly not one of their own. Then again, how could they even be sure it was a police car? Whatever the case, no one pressed to join us. Nice place, I offered before the doors closed. I was being sincere. While the architecture might have been a bit antiquated, the interior positively sparkled it was so clean. And aside from the workers on the docks and obvious tourists, the civilians I saw were all dressed nicely, even formally, as if the society of this place frowned on appearing in public in casual clothing. 
Yes, it is. Mr. Hare agreed from up front, without directly looking at anything as we drove, while yet seeming quite aware of everything. And that was all until we reached a main-level floor. The bay-style elevator doors opened onto a busy city street, or maybe a detailed stage-play version of one. Everything, and I mean everything, was perfect and clean. Not a single item of clothing, not a structure, not a passing vehicle, nor even the deck under our car's rollers appeared to show anything like wear and tear. It engendered an odd sensation as we turned onto the street, and it was even odder to contemplate in context. Perfect cops and perfect streets. These people very visibly worshipped a definition of enforced law and societal order that was a step or three beyond anything I'd ever seen. Keswick Station appeared comfortably middle class if the nice clothes and the number of roller cars on the street were indicators. And, like with everything else to be seen, there must have been rules, either written or assumed, about keeping personal possessions clean and maintained, because every single car that went by, even if an older model, and actually many appeared to be classics, looked like it had just rolled out of the showroom. A public tram trundled by, and it was a giant toy train, bright primary colors, perfect and shiny. The place had a general buzz and the industrious character of a well-contented population. Over the years, I'd learned that those who enjoy the greatest gains in the pursuit of happiness were rarely the ones doing the heavy lifting in a society. All this displayed civic responsibility, coupled with such uniform social mores, did little for my mood. Traffic down here was a bit heavy, and we rather bumped along, my retinals informing me that we were in the middle of a standard shift change at the moment. Rush hour, as it were. The car was roomy inside, if simplistic in amenities. Hadia Dusentabel watched the station go by, silent and composed, or at least resigned. I closed my eyes and tried not to anticipate. The ride lasted about half an hour before the detective's car slowed to a perfect stop in front of a building painted as darkly as everything else associated with this situation. It was almost certainly meant to intimidate, which implied they felt there was a need to. Yet with such a flawless, manufactured quality to the community, it was unclear at first who they were trying to impress. This was a busy port and a border settlement, so maybe people like me. Extra nationals who were encouraged to witness the trappings of order and maybe take a breath before acting on our own worst impulses. That was certainly possible, because it's how I felt, swallowing a nervous quip as the car doors opened. We didn't walk through the front entrance, but rather a metal gate leading to a side alley that, as with the car, opened as we approached. Doubtlessly, all these barriers were responding to some sort of lock code embedded in the officer's attire, assigned equipment, or even their very bodies through cybernetics or subtle biometric ident scans. This alley abridged the Posse Station and what appeared to be some other government facility next to it, which had an imposing bureaucratic quality all its own. 
There was a smaller security door towards the back, which likewise opened before us. This revealed a stairwell platform, with one flight going up and another going down. We went down. A few officers greeted my escorts with friendly tones, walking by busily, while yet others offered nothing, nor seemed to even notice us. Most of these wore actual uniforms instead of identical business suits, with delineations on their sleeves of either duty or hierarchy. The workers, flitting around us, who were not police officers, were in light brown uniforms with contrasting sleeve and trouser stripes. As for the street cops, their uniforms were navy with even darker piping. They had soft caps like oversized berets, but sitting at the very tops of their heads like halos. I'd seen similar such in catalogs for shipboard security equipment. Appearing as slightly large but otherwise ordinary felt caps, they were, in fact, the type of body armor. In a fight, you could pull one of these down over your face like a balaclava to resist small arms fire. These peace officers had made it part of their standard uniform. The gaudy suits of the Fausel guards came to mind then. Since a bullet-resistant cap would be inadequate on its own, without some protection for the rest of the body, all these crisp, stuffy police uniforms assumed a far more practical aspect in my eyes. One odd element of the street officers that stood out was that they didn't appear to be armed at all, not even so much as with the stun sticks available to security on Dorcas. Considering the impression of authority they were careful to otherwise present, this seemed like a strange omission. That is, until I noticed it. Every cop in a uniform was the same height as our escorts. In fact, they were all the same height and build as each other, which was a head taller and far broader across than any of those wearing the brown office suits, and certainly than of the two witnesses who'd agreed to be interviewed. This gave me pause, and my apprehension must have been all over my face. There is no reason for concern, sir, the kiss guy with the hair reassured. We simply need your statements, the other one added, in the same tone of voice, though in his characteristically high pitch. I'd been more right than I'd known, labeling them in my thoughts as manufactured. Far beyond what could be considered the result of bias on the part of police recruiters, the entire force had to have been genetically modified, perhaps even comprehensively gen-engineered. Though each possessed distinctive facial features, skin tone, hair, etc., they were otherwise the same. These men, and they were all distinctively male in gender presentation, were doubtlessly very strong, perhaps more than might typically be considered human. And if so, they'd also have undergone combat training to make the most of it. Those qualities that could still be said to distinguish them one from another strongly implied genetic diversity as a starting point. I wondered if, when joining up, a posi applicant had to agree to be changed to become a policeman, and in so doing, become both more and quite possibly less than a man, and certainly something other than one.
Scanning that central room as we passed through and taking it all in, I couldn't even imagine the fiscal budget of a settlement that could afford such a thing. There was another hallway on the far side, and we passed a few people in there, going in and out of side doors. Ten or twelve meters down the way, we came upon a small cafeteria, where a few officers and people in light brown sat chatting quietly. One was pulling a cup of tea from a tall, hissing samovar on a counter along one end. An older woman, wearing an apron over a pale beige version of the brown uniform, was just then clearing a round table. I took her for a break-room attendant. She seemed like someone's mother, but with a flat, expressionless gaze. "'Please have a seat, sir,' the fair-haired cop invited, gesturing to me. "'We will do this one at a time.' The other detective then spoke to the attendant quietly in a low-speak dialect that my rig didn't quite catch or translate. Popping up with a warning about incomplete data, it couldn't hear them properly, slang, or a localism of some kind. Still, the context implied a request to watch after me for a bit. Hadia Duzentabel looked to both of them and then to me, unmistakable alarm now displayed in those dark eyes limbed in pencil. I've been ordered by my captain to stay by this young lady's side, I protested, not moving. Another officer will be along in a few minutes, Mr. Hare stated, as if I hadn't said anything. Please be so kind as to wait for him here. I'm sorry, Detective, but I can't do that. I have my orders. He didn't move either. He didn't have to. He stood in the doorway and took it up entirely. As we had been walking to this break room, the Fausel maid, or whatever her actual position in the household, had been maneuvered in such a way that she was behind him. The pale one had his arm on hers in a gentle, almost gallant manner. He smiled back at me disarmingly, and it was positively dreadful. Please, the darker one said firmly, staring me down with hard, ivory eyes. Behind, his partner moved off out of sight, his witness stumbling, frightened eyes on mine, until she was gone. Mr. Hare continued his standoff, a composed, even faintly amused expression on his ugly face. He was giving his partner time to get the young woman into whichever room they were using for the interview. If I wanted to try anything cute after this, like follow my orders despite their reassurances, I wouldn't even know where to look. It was all practiced and all standard procedure. Of course... I responded at last. Do you know how long the interviews will take? I do not, he replied, still just standing there as an obstacle. I suppose it will be up to you and your friend, the choices you make, so to speak. He held on to the moment, gesturing to the very table the attendant had been clearing. She, in turn, did the same, up to and including a wooden, not-quite smile. Please don't swear at me, detective, I scolded while turning to comply. Choice can't possibly be a nice word here. I sat at the indicated table and looked back. The woman joined him by the door. They both contemplated me quizzically, 
the first human expression I could say to have witnessed among the posse. They whispered a bit, eyes on the fat alliancer in their midst. Then, after a bit, the cop nodded my way, imitating politeness, and walked off to join his fellow. Would like tea? Biscuits? the attendant asked in brittle English. The powerful presence of the detective gone, she now watched me with open suspicion, waiting for an answer. Tea, yes, thank you, I replied quietly, bumbling in my primitive low-speak. Sindra's long-form scolding surrounding my ignorance had sunk in, and about a year before I'd started running through the basics of the language with a self-study course in my spare time. It wasn't much, and I still relied upon translation software to get by, but asking for various beverages was an early exercise I remembered. The woman smiled without mirth at my attempt to speak her lingo, but then it was gone just as quickly. She retreated to the counter, where there were a row of porcelain cups and saucers. She carefully poured a thin stream of near-black steaming hot liquid from the samovar. There was an insulated carafe to one side, and she measured out a bit of cremette into another tiny container, something like a narrow flask, and placed both onto a tray. She brought it over then, her every movement reminiscent of an elderly alley cat, slow, smooth, even graceful, but very careful and very watchful. Now that I could study her, she didn't really seem very old. She might have only been a couple years my senior, but her entire aspect was tipped more toward perseverance than vitality. I thanked the woman, and she nodded tightly, then returned to the counter and resumed cleaning. The Pazzi were, indeed, an imposing force, and, as an organization, evidently wary of strangers. The strict order of the people in this building had a sort of chiseled elegance you'd never expect to see in a cop shop. But if I'd arrived here in tape cuffs, I suspected that my reception would have been quite a bit different. Having been on the luckless end of law enforcement investigations before... I knew the people conducting those were invariably unconvinced by everything, even their own evidence, until it was convenient to think otherwise. It didn't help that they were almost always overworked. This crowd was different. Busy, but not burned out. Professional, stiff, deliberately intimidating, yet in and of themselves apparently free of stress. For that matter, the entire space station had given off that vibe. One quick ride across town was hardly a substitute for living among the people, but having been on my share of colony settlements before, I'd gotten pretty good at sizing them up on the fly. Though the physical attributes of the officers and detectives was impossible to ignore, their shared personality traits, which I'd written off as some sort of bioprogramming instilled during all the genetic work, might have actually just been a cultural thing. This polite, suspicious woman was behaving in a more overt manner than the cops, perhaps, but it was of a kind. This might have been exactly how any of the people I'd seen on the street coming over would have acted if they had her job. 
Keziko was seeming like a nice place to visit, but a better one to leave. I waited for nearly an hour reading archived news stories on my all-in-one retinals. About a year before the Dorcas gig came along, the left bone con component of my old retinals had become infected, and my cheeks swelled up over the course of a single shift for no reason anyone could explain to me. Apparently, it just happens sometimes. That entire side of my face got red and angry, lending it a shiny tomato appearance for several days. Medications took care of the infection, but the bone cons had to come out. To be honest, those sorts of invasive, under-the-skin consumer gadgets were always a bit bothersome. Their utility and convenience had won me over, but they were far from perfect and impossible to service. I'd had issues with different sets of retinals over the years, mostly due to accidents or injuries not covered under the warranties, but problems were problems. The things were invaluable for everyday use, but in time, the expressly cybernetic aspect of such a rig of disparate pieces began to wear the convenience factor a bit thin. Eventually, I bit the bullet and purchased a set of Summit brand Precision Model 7 Interactive Oral and Visual Laminates. These didn't get implanted under the corneas, but rather were layered over the eyeballs as coatings. The entire precision line fell into a relatively new classification within the biotech enhancements industry, known as system adaptive augmentations. After being installed, and over the course of time as things wore out, the very structure of SAA gadgetry became replaced, bit by bit, with material from one's own body, in my case sourced from trace elements found in my tears. Minor damage, like scratches and such, would self-repair over time, atom by atom. This process was cataloged and controlled by the lenses themselves, and all changes were read-writable. As soft and wetware updates were published out by the company, they could be applied while the devices were active and in service. Summit was a corporate space company, and hands down the innovation leader in the crowded realm of cyber optics. Precision Model 7s used structural processing and storage, meaning that the molecules of the things, eventually my molecules, were also used for data storage and processing. The devices managed this through meticulous control of the spin of their own electrons via localized high-precision manipulation of the bioelectric field in and around my eyes. They possessed memory, computational capabilities, and highly responsive augmented depth-of-field displays. According to the sales literature, they'd just be another part of my body after a while. Computational media devices made from me. And even if I chose to be rid of them at some point, that could be easily accomplished by an ophthalmologist with a special enzyme solution. They were also self-powering, a complicated combined process. 
It used body heat, solar rays, that is photons, my own bioelectrics, a little bit of blood sugar, and maybe some black magic tossed in for good measure. The most uncanny aspect of the things, and the one that I'd had the most trouble getting used to, was their oral conductivity and expressive qualities. I could hear with my eyes now. Sensitive to sonic vibrations, Model 7s could interpret these and run them through various software tools for clarity and general cleanup, including sound compensation similar to that of other communication devices. That they could themselves molecularly vibrate to make micro-frictional signals that were sympathetically amplified through proximity to my nasal cavity and paranasal sinuses was something completely new. My inner ears, conveniently located nearby, easily picked up these sound amplifications, meaning my eyes were now acting as an audio interface. The voices in my head, as it were. Let me tell you, the sensation of your eyes vibrating with the sound of people's voices is unique. Bizarre at first, even unpleasant, I was shocked to realize after a month that I'd gotten rather used to it. Feeling sound as well as hearing it had become normal. What plastic things we are. Now throw in partial electromagnetic reception and emission, providing sensitivity to infrared, ultraviolet, and radio waves. This allowed for honest-to-goodness night vision and fully interactive networking. The rig watched the world as I did and could throw up an augmented reality layer upon command metadata and contextual updates on the things I saw and did all day, but with virtual controls that, from my POV, seemed like buttons, keys, and sliders I could interact with. Touching them was just a matter of the lenses interpreting my hand gestures. It wasn't perfect, especially at the start, but the system could be taught. Eventually, it was able to distinguish my movements and apply them as normal commands before I even completed them. As you might imagine, this was the most obscenely expensive single purchase of my life up to that point. The joy of next-generation cyber wetware notwithstanding, the cost of these things put me in a hole. Literally. I'd had to take a sanitation temp job right away on Fenton Learer Station an aging rimstay back in Ainspace. If you think feeling sound with your eyes seems strange, imagine owning a top-of-the-line ocular rig, on par with the best embedded bioequipment in all the galaxy, gear that only the wealthiest people were willing or able to pay for, all while standing in a sealed biohazard suit inside a sewage pipe knee-deep in fecal matter. Now imagine doing that for three months straight. I hadn't touched my long-term savings when I went purchase-happy, but my hard credit account was gutted. This had made me cash-poor and nervous going into the Dorcas gig. That's a bad combination, and as an object lesson, something I seemingly had to learn again and again. Technical definitions aside, I still thought of the ocular lenses as retinals because they were used the same way. I liked these Precision Model 7s. I mean, for what I paid, I was darn sure going to try to. But that wasn't the same as trusting them. They were new tech, as in relatively new to the market. 
likely their biggest issues or limitations had yet to even surface. I was contemplating this soberly when a man in a crisp suit came in and asked if I was Mr. DeSantos. A plainclothes detective, he wore a slip-on badge over his breast pocket. He looked to be in his forties or so, had brown hair parted perfectly to the left, and slicked down with some citrus-scented pomade. He sported a boring mustache, though one might have called it sensible here, trimmed precisely to the edges of his lips and no lower. His dark brown eyes were those of a cop, assessing and critical, but his manners and bearing were quite restrained. His build was that of the other policeman here, despite that he was clearly older. Within any other station in settled space, this guy's perfect lapels and precise grooming would have better implied authority than the badge itself. But in this place, I imagine, he was just another well-ordered and quietly cultured officer of the law, one barely masquerading as a man of the street. I am Senior Detective de Eric Somme. Pleasure to make your acquaintance. He spoke in perfect, lightly accented English. Likewise, I guess I'm to follow you. He surrendered a half-smile and then sat at my little table while speaking and taking out a tiny pad from his inside jacket pocket. The tea and sandwich were nowhere to be seen, that quiet attendant with such penetrating attention having removed them without being asked mere moments after the man walked in. So quiet, efficient, and unassuming, the woman could have cut my throat and I might not have noticed. No need, sir. The Kezika Station Constabulary greatly appreciates your cooperation. We have received a copy of your statement from the ship, which should suffice for our purposes. This is, of course, regarding the unfortunate events aboard your vessel. Shocking, appalling. The body of the suspect is being released to the coroner even as we speak. Perhaps a post-mortem will find he had a tumor of the brain. Who can say? Surely it was an act of madness. He stared at me, expectantly, and with a friendly aspect etched, as if in marble. Oh, surely, I agreed after a time, finally catching the drift. He nodded approvingly and made a show of writing my response down. This was all being recorded by hidden cameras, mics, and sensors, I had no doubt, so the show of writing had to be for my sake. This department does not wish to detain you or your ship any further than is required. I only have one or two short questions, the answers to which may help to clear all this up. May they? Well, okay, then. He gave me another sort of smile and fussed with his pad a bit, thin stylus scratching quietly. It was an actual paper pad bound in what appeared to be leather, caramel brown and a bit worn. If real animal hide, it was very expensive. Perhaps senior detectives could afford such things. The policeman extended the moment. He licked his fingers and searched through his notebook soberly flipping those tiny pages one after the other, 
as if reviewing all the gathered information and reasoned conclusions thus far. That actually could have been quite a bit of data, all told, since Dorcas radioed in the news of the murder along with copies of the ship's security reports upon arriving in this system. The man's hunt for his questions went on for nearly a full minute, and we sat in silence while he conducted it. We were now completely alone, the attendant having vacated the room. The thin rasp of the detective's fingers on the pages and the gentle intermittent scraping of the stylus as he checked things off, punctuated by silence and the sound of far-off efficiency, made it a long minute. Finally, though, he looked up. If I may ask you to confirm a point of detail, were Mr. Fausel's children present during the attack? Um, no, his kids weren't in the room. It was Mr. and Mrs. Fausel, Hadia Dusentabel, who was acting as an attendant, one of the family guards, and myself. Duca, too, of course. Of course. Mrs. Fausel survived the attack. The transcript we received implies that you saved her. Saved her? No. That was an odd thing for him to say. He peered into his notebook, apparently having as much trouble understanding his own crabbed handwriting as I had his question. You struck Mr. Duca, did you not, and knocked the weapon from his hand? I just saw a gun and lashed out. I see. That was very brave of you, sir. You are to be commended. His voice and characteristic smile were filled with warmth and sincerity, but his eyes weren't. I just nodded and he returned to his notebook, flipping more pages. This time it only went on for a few seconds before he stopped on something written there, touching it with his pencil. And you say Mrs. Fausel was unharmed? No, I didn't say that at all. Her husband was gruesomely murdered right in front of her. Of course, apologies. I meant physically unharmed. The assailant, this Mr. Duca, did not get the chance to attack her as well, is this correct? I haven't heard that she was injured. I don't suppose they'd tell me, either way. Perhaps not, he agreed, distractedly, writing this down in his little book. Once again he scratched at the paper for a very long time, saying nothing. He flipped several pages as he wrote. I looked around while he performed this routine. Since he arrived, no one had come into the room, not even to notice us and back out discreetly. We could have had the entire station to ourselves. Senior Detective Somme looked up eventually. And to reiterate, you do not believe the children, er... Uh, uh, he flipped a page and consulted it. Viola and Indita, you don't believe they were harmed in any way? I never knew their names, actually, but no, they weren't there. If something happened elsewhere, it's news to me. They and their mother are perfectly safe, according to your captain. Do you know when they'll be exiting the ship? 
I don't have that information. Sorry. Truly? Important guests, and you don't know when they intend to leave? The original plan, as it was explained to those of us in the galley, was that they'd be debarking here at Kezika. I don't know if that's changed. Well, it does seem to be taking some time. He made this comment just as serenely as ever with his voice and bearing, but more severely with his gaze. I'm just a cook, detective, or I work in the kitchen anyway. And I've been squirreled away from everything and everyone since the attack. He thought about this, and it seemed to make sense to him after a bit. He nodded and closed the book. Thank you, Mr. DeSantos. If you could wait here, I'll have someone bring you back to your vessel as soon as a car is free. Apologies, but there may be a small delay. We are so very busy today. He gestured to the sideboard that held the samovar, cups, and plates. I believe they'll be serving Corbash stew for late meal, which will be soon. It's a local specialty. I was ordered to cooperate with you, detectives, so my time is your time. This pleased the man, and he gave me a simple smile. He stood, said thanks, gathered up his stylus and notebook, returned them to his inner pocket, and made to leave after a brief head bow, polite to the nth degree. Senior Detective Som, he stopped and looked back. Um... Hadia Duzentabel? Yes. Are we to meet here? If so, when can I expect her? Oh, well, it's difficult to be certain. I'm not conducting that interview. Could you inquire? He stared at me some more, his eyebrows knitting slowly. I'm supposed to escort her back to the ship. I supplied, though he already knew that. She is an imperial citizen and of a different domain than that of our great and good Lord Jiru. May Allah bless and keep him. There are formalities uh, which must be followed. It may take some time. Then I guess I'll wait. There's no need. We'll bring her back to you when we're done. I'm afraid I have to insist, Detective. The captain of an Alliance vessel gave me a duty to perform. As you say, it's a shocking event. There's a great deal of attention on us right now. On all of us. So many people looking for answers, both here and in Ainspace. We simply can't have anyone go missing, can we? As I spoke, his face remained just as steady and placid as it had been all along, but my, my, those eyes, if looks could kill. Of course I can inquire, Mr. DeSantos. I thanked him and gave up a tight-lipped smile, which was about all I could muster at that point. He left without another word. In a minute, the matronly server returned. Morty, sir?
You have been listening to Wall He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through TribeOfNoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.